This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 16th, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. The message is by Father Ron Baird. The past few weeks from the Gospel of Mark, and if you recall, he has been traveling about in what is called the region of the Decapolis. You're all familiar with that, right? The Decapolis means the ten cities. And in northern Israel, southern Lebanon, kind of southwestern Syria, there were ten Greco-Roman cities that were sort of a um, major points where they had tax collecting and things like that, that where a lot of people lived. And the particular one that he's coming up to today, called Caesarea Philippi, um, was put there by one of the excuse me, one of the sons of Herod. Some of them were built by Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? He was the one with slaughter of the innocents when Jesus was born. Some of them were built by his sons. Um, Philip is the name of the son who has the governorship over that part of the Middle East. And his brother, Herod Antipas, whom we know from the, um, the Holy Week services and the crucifixion things, has the southern part. Philip was a little more tolerant of, of some of the Jews and some of their practices than was Herod. Of course, Herod also lived closer to where Pilate was, so that might be partly why. But, um, and so he's traveling around talking to people. Now, he never stays in those cities. And one thing about Jesus is he didn't stay in big cities. He didn't like big cities. So if he were alive today and traveling around, he, he would probably drive up to Bucyrus and spend the night and drive back in. But he didn't stay in, in major areas. And this particular town, Caesarea Philippi, is called that because his actual name was Caesarea. But Caesarea just means, I guess we would probably say king's town. Because Caesar was the king. So Caesarea means king's town built by Philip. Caesarea Philippi. And he built this town at the foot of Mount Hermon. And at the foot of Mount Hermon, it comes down and there's a big cliff that drops right there. And there was already a village that existed there. Its name was Panius. Now, can you guess why it was named Panius? Yeah, that's him. <laughs> there was a god, a Greek, Greek, a Greek god named Pan, who was half goat and half man. Now, let me ask you something. If you were going to be a god, would you want to be half goat? I mean, I've never quite figured that one out. But that was a big one with the shepherds. They loved the half-goat, half-man guy. And there was this great big grotto there. And the, the people who had lived there from time on, the shepherds, always believed that the god Pan lived in that grotto. And it was a deep kind of cave and water came out of it. Um, and, and they assumed that that was where Pan lived. And so when they wanted to make a sacrifice to their gods, since they were shepherds, they would come and make sacrifices and throw them into the grotto. And as a result, people settled there because when they were coming to make their sacrifices, they had to eat and have a place to stay. And so, it, you know, sort of a small village grew up around it. And it was there that Philip decided to build this town. And this town, though, was much more of a, a Greek-Roman kind of town. And it's here where Jesus takes his disciples. And if you go up, right up to where the cliff is, there's a, a street that runs parallel to the cliff. And if you look over to your left, there's that grotto, and that, the Temple of Pan was there in front of it. 
And if you, that's on the, the far side of it where the mountain is. If you look immediately to your left on this side of the street, you have the Temple of Caesar Augustus. And then all the way down the street to the right, there are various temples to Venus and, and you, know, very, you know, Mars, different gods that people would go in and sacrifice to. If you went all the way down and turned right into that one, that was the Temple of the Dancing Goats. My theory is that's where all the action was, the Temple of the Dancing Goats. And so here Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, you know, sort of urban type of area for them because they were fishermen, country folk. And, and he's walking there, and, and you can almost imagine the, the disciples in awe because you got these marble you know, statues and, and buildings, and they're probably like, wow, man, this is really neat, you know, very impressive. And it's there that Jesus says, who, who is it people say I am? Now, why do you think he asked them that question right then? Yeah, because they have all these other gods around. So now he's going to say, well, who, who do people say I am? Well, being good disciples and not wanting to get it wrong, but not wanting to overstep the bounds, I say, some said, you know, Elijah, you know, some said they're prophets, some said, you know, all kinds of John the Baptist returned. Um, and he, then he asked a poignant question. But who do you say that I am? And on that question, for 2,000 years, Eternal life is hinged. Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter, who's at that point, his name is Shimon. Simeon, sometimes Shimon, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's there that his name is changed to Peter. And he says, I tell you, you shall be called Peter, which in Greek, Petra means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, that was done on purpose because here he is standing right in front of Mount Hermon with this huge cliff and all these buildings made of rock that are marvelous. And he's saying to Peter, you know, to, to Simon Peter, that this is the rock on which I will build my church. Now, in spite of the popular opinion amongst some, he didn't mean Peter the person. He meant Peter's faith about who he was. And he's doing all this on the street corner. You know, and, and he's just standing there talking to his disciples as they're gathered. And we know that at least the 12 and probably some others were with him. So he had a bit of a crowd around. And it says, then he begins to teach them, telling them, here's what's going to happen. We're going to leave here. We're going to head south. We're going to go all the way to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, there's something you need to know. I'm going to be arrested and tried and tortured and killed. And then on the third day, I'll rise again. And it says that Peter uh, took him aside to rebuke him. Now, this Greek word that's used, took him aside, is interesting. What he does is he kind of comes up and he grabs his arm and says, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> now, why is it that Peter's taking him aside to do this? <coughs> hmm? Why not? I mean, this is the teacher, the master. He's going to tell him you're wrong in front of everybody else. I mean, it, it, you know, that doesn't work very well. You don't respect people by undermining their authority in front of everybody. So he's really trying to be nice about it. But I love how he takes him by the arm. And so he says, you know, you shouldn't talk like that. Now, why does he think he shouldn't talk like that? 
Yeah, I mean, he's in the middle of a city on a street corner telling everybody this stuff. You know, that's dangerous. You could get killed doing that kind of thing. And furthermore, he didn't want Jesus to die. Misa started getting the hang of this stuff. And, and besides, after all, he is now Peter, isn't he? And he's the Pope, so he should have some say over what goes on. So here he is, and he pulls Jesus aside and says, don't do that, you know. You, you, know, you shouldn't be talking like that in front of everybody like that. You know, it's, it's not safe. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's not God who revealed this to you, it is man. And then he goes back and begins to teach the disciples again. And thus the rise and fall of the greatest career in history happened all at one in like three minutes. <laughs> it's up and down real fast. And, but it really ultimately all depends back on that question, doesn't it? Who do you say that I am? And do you see how Peter had made a statement, hadn't he, about who Jesus was? He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he proceeded to tell the Christ, the Son of the living God, how things really ought to be. Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years either, have they? And so Jesus begins to say, look, if you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. Because it, what good does it do you to gain the whole world if you lose everything? You know, and he said, so that's useless to you. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it now. So what does that mean? That's really the essence of what that means. You know, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That same question is the question that haunts us today. And one of the sad statements about the church is that there are lots of people out there who say they are Christians who say all kinds of things about who Jesus is. You know, some people say he was a great teacher. Well, yeah, I mean, apparently he was a good teacher. He always grew a crowd, but is that really the essence of who he was? Some people say that he was somebody who said, you'll follow the rules and you do these things and straighten up or else you're going to go to hell. Is that who Jesus is? Some people say that Jesus loves everybody and he says, don't worry about it. Do whatever you want. It'll work out in the end. Is that who he is? Is it any wonder that the world is confused about who this person is? It's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what was it about Peter that got it so right? What was it that he said that, that made such a difference that Jesus would give him a new name? What is it about being the Christ, the Son of the living God? Is it kind of like he guessed a $64,000 question or something, you know, or the duck comes down, you know, like Groucho Marx used to have? I know I'm old. Um, the young people are going, who the heck is Groucho Marx? Uh, and, but I mean, the real question is, is, who is he? Well, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is saying, you are the Lord God, King of the universe the one who reigns supreme over all that is and all that will be and all that ever has been. You are Lord. And being Lord could make a difference, shouldn't it? What does it mean for somebody to be your Lord? 
Yeah, if somebody lords it over you, what are they doing? Yeah, they're controlling you, aren't they? Yeah, I own you. That's the confession that Peter makes. You are the one who created me from the dust. You are the one who gave me life and breath. You are the one who gave me purpose and meaning. Apart from you, I have no existence. That's what that statement means. You know, that, that's the part he got right. And then like most of us, he proceeds immediately to forget that and take over his own purpose. But it's that kind of following that is the faith upon which Jesus will build his church. And it's that kind of following that determines life and death for us. Not biological life and death on this planet. I mean, you can have that even if you don't believe that. Or so can mosquitoes. But, but if you want life, life that never ends, then you have to be dependent upon the one who made you, who knows why he made you. And you have to listen to him and obey him and follow him. Because what good would it do you to gain all of those things? Only to lose it all. Because you don't have life. And so it becomes very important who we say Jesus is. And, and not just, you know, spouting words, but living those words. That's why James, you all know James has really been hung up on people's bad speech lately. And we've been reading this for, what, three, four weeks now. They must have had a real problem in the church where he was writing to. People must have been really backbiting each other terribly. And so he's back on that again about bridling the tongue. But he says something that's a little bit significant in that that's a little bit different. He says, how can, you know, we say in the one hand that God is great. How can we give praise and glory to God with our lips and then turn around and condemn someone who is made in the image of God with the same lips? He said that it shouldn't be so. He said, because, I mean, let's face it. He says, fig trees don't produce olives. You know, it doesn't work that way. Grapevines don't produce figs. You know, brackish water doesn't produce good water to drink. You have to be one or the other, don't you? I mean, I always liked it when I was growing up, people would talk about, well, well we think she's sort of pregnant. I remember that term, sort of pregnant. I always wonder what sort of pregnant was. I mean, either you were, I didn't figure, figure that out. I can be sort of. But an awful lot of us live out our lives being sort of Christians. Sort of people who follow Jesus as Lord because we say that. But do we live it on a day-to-day basis? And it's not the words that matter. Jesus elsewhere says, there are many who will call me Lord, Lord. Then they will enter and say, Lord, you know, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, go away, I never knew you. But, 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 you know, we were in church every Sunday. No, don't know you. Because all we do is give it lip service. You know, all too often we like the idea of Jesus as Savior. I mean, who doesn't want a Savior, right? You got a problem, you can't fix, you want somebody to save it. You know, we like the idea of uh, Jesus as the love of God. Who doesn't want love? 
But Americans have a hard time with Jesus as Lord because to really let him be our Lord, we have to surrender. You know, if you were a serf in the Middle Ages and the Lord of the manor came through and said, go get me a drink of water, could you say, I'm busy right now doing a little bit? Didn't really work that way, did it? No, you went and did it because your Lord commanded you to do it. Well, we are called to have that kind of relationship with Christ. Not because God needs to, you know, somehow or other be a dictator over our life, but because he truly knows us. He knows who we really are in our innermost being. See, we resist it so much because we've had too many human beings that want to lord it over us. And that's always dangerous. Because, you know, whether it was your father when you were a child, or whether it's a boss or whether it was the, the coach of the football team, or, or, or whoever it was. There are too many people who want to control us and tell us what to do. And it doesn't take us too long before we get old enough to figure out that they don't always get it right. And the church very often does the same thing, by the way. There are a lot of people who believe that you should do what the church tells you to do. You know, and there are a lot of pastors who believe that you should do what they tell you to do. Well, I want to tell you right now, the only, there's only one time you should do what I tell you to do, and that's if you can hear the voice of Jesus and what I'm saying. Because quite honestly, if it isn't Jesus saying it and you're following me, you're in trouble. You know, trust me, I know I've been following me around for 57 years. Every time I follow me, it goes bad. I wouldn't want to wish it on you. But what I'm supposed to be doing is helping you hear the voice of Jesus. Helping you surrender to him, not me. You don't have to surrender to middle management. You know, surrender to the Lord. Because he still wants to walk with you and talk with you and tell you that, he is, that you are his own. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He made you. He knows why you're here. And he can help you to be really you. And all those things, that, that those insecurities that we have and those doubts, he can help with those if we will surrender to him because he knows why we're here. That's why James is talking about, you know, that the teachers need to be very careful. They'll be held to a stricter guideline than most people. And that, the reason for that isn't because, you know, be careful what you teach kind of thing. It has to do with what is it you're teaching. Well, what you should be teaching is Christ. Teaching people to hear Christ. Not teaching them do this, don't do that. Because heaven knows that'll change in 1,500 years. But the question is, is who do you say that he is? Because if all that we do is give it lip service, if we say that he is the Lord of my life and then I turn around and, and gossip about someone or dislike someone because they irritate me and talk badly about them, I'm talking badly about one of God's children. You like it when people badmouth your children? Not much. You know, it's one thing if you're going to badmouth them, they're yours, but <laughs> nobody else should do it. And, and that's the way it is with the Lord. We belong to Him. And so we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus our Lord? Is He really someone who I'm willing to surrender 
So what do I surrender if I surrender my Lord, myself to the Lord? What do you think? That wasn't rhetorical. <laughs> hmm? Your wealth? What else? Everything? But what does everything mean? Your will? Your life? Hmm? Your kids? Your health? Your body? Your marriage? Your doubts? Everything, literally. But we need to remember that everything encompasses real things, not just partial things. And we surrender them to the Lord of the universe. Because He's the one who created us. He's the one who formed us from the dust and set our world in motion. And He will guide us to that place where we will have fulfillment in real life and joy that is abundant beyond measure. Now, He doesn't promise you that that's going to happen, you know, right here, right now. Because the truth is we live in a place where not everybody knows that He is Lord. And believe it or not, whether you like it or not, they have an impact on you. They affect you. And it will cause problems. People who seem to think that if I accept Jesus as my Lord, my Savior, that means my life